Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. Grab your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 22 through 33 today. Welcome to all of us that are, all of you that are joining us. If you're new, uh, visiting, we're so glad to have you together. Usually at 11 o'clock though, it's, it's all family. I don't see many people that uh, aren't part of Cornerstone Bible Church, but we're welcome. Also, we know that we're still um, talking to those that are not able to be with us. So I just want to kind of give it just a word for a minute and say thank you for joining us, but we really want you to be here with us. And we recognize that this time is difficult, even as Chris prayed And we are praying for you, that you would both be able to join us soon, that God would end the pandemic, and that we would see Christ continue to grow in his church. Just a remembrance that not only do you need us, but we need you. So we're looking for the day that you were able to join us again, addressing us in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as well. So we look forward to that day, and we are praying for you. We love you. All right, let's go ahead and read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 together, and then we will pray. This is God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you respect, uh, love, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we, we pray, hallowed be your name. You are a creator God. All else is creation. We are creatures. And Lord, we are accountable to you and you alone. We worship you and praise you. Lord, you are sovereignly weaving history together according to your eternal purposes and will. You will surely do what you have set out to do. And we praise you. We confess that not only are we finite, but God, we rebel. We rebel against you and your ways, and your orders for us. And we find ourselves, Lord, mired in doubt, self-righteousness, lust, anger, pride, selfishness. Lord, forgive us. We ask you as we come together, as we sit into the word, that we would be understanding of our plight. But Lord, we have had our eyes opened. We have seen the truth. And so we thank you for the debt that was paid by Jesus Christ for us. You have made us whole in you. 
You've given us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we can know you through him and through your word. So thank you for the Bible and for the gifts of your Holy Spirit and your body around us. Lord, we ask that this morning as we get ready to go, we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we'd bear fruit as we abide in you, and that you would use us for your purposes. But Lord, as we come now and, and, and submit ourselves to the word, we ask that you would work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to start out with kind of a question here today. Um, we don't do a lot of topical preaching. Um, I know I've crossed a couple different uh, churches who would do a lot of different sessions on how to do this or how to do that. And it's a very practical one, very good one for us. But we would ask the question, how are we supposed to do our marriages? How are we to dwell with one another as man and wife, as, as wife and husband? How is that supposed to happen? Uh, there's a lot of good literature out there that tells us how we should work together, how we should figure this out, how we're to dwell together, have children, and do all the other things that a man and a wife do, a husband and wife do. But I'll, I'll probably make a point here that is not surprising to you. Some of the most prolific writers are actually Christians because they're the ones who are committed to it working out for the long haul. Uh, a lot of the secular liter you know, literature will just not be as connected to saying this needs to be forever. And so we have lots of different voices speaking into that. And you probably read a book or been part of a seminar or heard someone speak about how to do marriage. And it's a good thing. We should be working on these things. It's a good thing in our lives. But what I want to say here is this isn't my opinion. This isn't my idea about marriage. This is actually God's and what Paul's going to do is give us a foundational understanding of what marriage ought to look like as a Christian marriage. He is going to tell us what it looks like for Christians to enter into this covenant of marriage together and how that should work. I understand that this is not a, uh, a fun topic for so many, maybe because of your experiences before, whether the marriage you're in or perhaps the home that you came from. However, Paul is going to give us some clarity here for us to understand what creation is saying about marriage and what God set it up to be like. He's basically going to give us God's design for Christian marriage. Over the next two weeks, this one and the next one, we're going to cover this passage, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. It's all one passage, as you can see. It's all one unit, but it's entirely too big for me to cover in one week. And I, just for a moment of honesty, I thought I maybe could, and I was working on this away, and I realized that I could probably do it in maybe 90 to 100 minutes. That's what I probably could have preached this in. And for your sake and mine, I decided not to do that. Uh, and thankfully, this actually breaks conceptually into two parts. So we'll cover the first part today, and then next week as we gather again together, we will cover the next part. Um, again, uh, for, for your sake and mine, we're going to break it up and just make it a little bit easier. The first one, what we'll do today, is we will learn about the design for Christian marriage, what he designed it to be like, how it's supposed to go together, the roles that we play. And then next week, we'll learn why God designed it that way. That means that it's important for you to remember all of that. So this is kind of the foundation and some crux pieces that helps us understand how this works. But next week, we will be drawing all this together because that's what, exactly what Paul does here. He's pulling these things together so that we understand both God's design for Christian marriage and then he's going to show us why this matters so much. Now, as modern people in the day and age that we live in, I understand that today's topic can be controversial. Um, it's possible that some of you came from rough households where uh, Christian love and submission was not the norm. 
Maybe it was abused, or maybe it just wasn't even a part of the conversation. Perhaps you were lived in a place where marriage was not practiced according to the word of God. Perhaps your experience has left you with a really bad taste in your mouth for marriage or for submission and love at all. And I understand that. And, and for that, I, I just want to say that I'm sorry. I know that I couldn't do anything specifically about it, but that's hard. That's really hard to either be a part of a, a marriage that does not work this way or have been part of that as far as a child or experiencing that some way. But I want you to know there's grace for us today because what Paul is saying is not even just his idea. What he is doing is going back to Genesis 2 to help us understand the foundations of the Christian institution of marriage. Marriage wasn't something that man made up. It was God's work. It was his from the beginning. And so there's hope for us today even as we look at it. But I would ask those who have had a, a bad, either been part of bad marriages or have had bad um, role models in their parents or have just have no desire to hear this message whatsoever, to submit yourself to the word, to be willing and patient as we work through this. I'll remind you that this is not Chris's word. I, I don't have the wisdom at all to do this kind of stuff. This is the word of God that teaches us what Christian marriage looks like. Sadly, I know that even in some Christian homes, these things have not been, off, uh, have not been modeled the proper way. And so let us look then and look at the scriptures and do our best in humility to learn from them. We even buck at the assumptions that Paul makes here, especially about gender roles within the covenant of marriage. We don't like it. We certainly don't like to talk about it, especially around the world. Um, you know, I mean, like by worldly people who do not submit themselves to God. And I know that it seems offensive and even outdated, antiquated, the old way of doing things. But to be honest, Paul doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't, he's not saying this either. This isn't some Roman household idea that like, has a little Christianese thrown into it. That's not what this is, is going on here. A lot of people will say, oh, this is just a Roman household code, and they just put Christ in it, and then they just made it their own. That's not true at all. That's going to be explained here as it relies solely on Genesis 2 for its beginnings and for how it's to be carried out here for us. So we understand that, and I understand also that we'll probably want to jump to a different question today. We will probably want to ask the question about gender roles in marriage. Why did God do this? Why is it that he made husbands men to lead and, and love? Why did he make women or, or, or wives to be those who submit and follow? Why did he decide to do that? These are good questions, and they're really important, actually. They're not the ones that Paul handles here in Ephesians 5, but they are good questions. And he doesn't go and not say anything about them whatsoever. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you're going to see that his argument actually is that these gender roles matter because woman was created from man. We didn't make this up. This is God's way of doing it. He made man, Adam, and from Adam, if you remember, his rib is made woman. And so we see when we're talking about gender roles, this is not something that we created. It's not something the church came up with over time. We're talking about all the way back to the beginning as God made mankind, he made them this way to show, in this sense, as to answer this first question, is that man is the source or the, um, in, that, in that way, the origin of woman. Not that he had anything to do with it. Again, it's God's design. So we've got to get that, in a sense, out of the way here, knowing that that's going to be something that constantly bothers us, especially in our worldly discussions, because the world continually wants to blur all those lines and say that it doesn't matter whatsoever. 
But we have to look back to Scripture and see that He is the one that instituted this and submit ourselves to Him, not the idea of the age. Anyway, here in our passage, Paul isn't dealing with that issue per se. In fact, he simply assumes that we understand that men in marriage will be the husbands who lead and love and that women will be the wives who follow and submit to their husbands. Paul's main concern is to teach us how to do Christian marriage properly, but then also, get this, to point to us and show us what the ultimate plan of redemption is. Before I move on though, and I'll more about that in a minute, before I move on, I think it's helpful in our culture and where we're at, it's a relevant topic for us to talk about worth and value and dignity. And this is what I mean by that. First thing, well, there's two things I want to say. First of all, submission does not automatically devalue a person. So again, submission does not devalue a person. A, a, a husband is not qualitatively better because he is responsible to love and lead his wife in marriage. In other words, he doesn't derive his value from the role that he plays that God gave to him. And likewise, it's, it's, it's wife is not, a wife is not qualitatively lesser because she plays the role of one that is submissive to her husband in this thing of marriage. If you don't believe me, consider Jesus for a moment. Think about Jesus and the Father, the second person in the Trinity. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, he says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Submission or subjection, same Greek word here, does not mean that the one who is submitting is of any lesser value whatsoever. Jesus is fully God, infinitely valuable and worthy, and yet he submits himself to the Father. So that is the first thing. Submission does not automatically devalue a person. Second, value does not come from playing a specific role but from one's identity. I'll say it again. Value doesn't come from playing a specific role, but from a person's identity. Both the husband and the wife's value come from being made in the image of God. We know this stuff. We think about this when we think about the sanctity of human life, when we think about abortion, or we think about those that maybe potentially are uh, mentally handicapped. And we think, are they lesser people? No. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. Obviously, their role in society is much different than ours. And yet we know, we know the truth. They are just as valuable and worthwhile. The same is true in marriage. Just because one person plays the role and another person plays a different role doesn't mean that their worth goes up and down because of the roles that they play. Their identity is that they are made in the image of God. A husband and a wife will answer God, obviously, for the different tasks and roles that they play, but this doesn't mean that they're inherently more valuable or less valuable because of that. And I know that's hard for us because we put a lot of value in actions and deeds instead of in identity. But as we see the scriptures proclaim over and over again, the facts that we are sons and daughters of God, specifically in Jesus, makes us infinitely valuable to him. Let alone the fact that all of his human beings are made in the image of God. Again, both parties are valuable because they've been made in the image of God. And if he values this, just, just an aside, we ought to as well. So, therefore, as we begin, we need to dispense with this kind of this misguided conversation that assumes that role has something to do with your value. 
you are going to notice that uh, as we go through this in these upcoming household codes, that they're called, that both those that have the authority given to them and those who are to submit to that authority, both are treated equally in a sense to say, we have to talk about both of those roles. We have the husbands and the wives. In the next section, you'll see we have the parents and the children. In the next section, you'll see we have the, um, the masters and the servants. He addresses all of these because it's important for each of them to play their role properly within the household that God has put them. So as we begin, I just want to make sure that we're clear that Paul is certainly delineating different roles in marriage, but he is not assigning different values to those people. Human dignity or value, whether a person is a wife or a husband, a child or a parent, servant or a master, human dignity is found in the truth that each person is made in the image of God. Okay, with those issues kind of started out here, let's take a look at our text. We know where we are at here now in 4 through 6, right? The chapter 4 through 6, we're in a thoroughly practical section. Remember, Paul is telling us how we ought to live as people who have gone from darkness to light, as people who have gone from being dead people to alive people, as those who were foolish before and far away to be those who now are enlightened and are near. In the last three verses, 19 through 21, Paul has outlined practical actions that flow from someone who is being filled by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that was the command in verse 18. Remember that? You, you can look there. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. With these people are addressing one another. These people are singing uh, to the Lord. They are thanking the Lord. And they are, the last thing there, submitting to one another. These are spirit-wrought activities. Now, this is really important. In other words, they, they can't produce these things without being controlled by the Holy Spirit. What we see here in our text today can't be separated from that truth. What you're going to hear is going to sound like a lot of rules, and it's got an explanation of what it's supposed to look like to be within this marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. But remember that it's actually all flowing out of the command to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It's going to be foundation for us to understand this. Now, unbelievers can do these things. They can do some of them, but they will never be happy and they will never be successful. Why? Because all of these things are works that are actually about denying yourself and relying on God to do them through you. In this section, 22 through 33, Paul is telling husbands and wives how to act properly in Christian marriage. He is going to tell them to do certain things based on the theological truth that we see in the relationship between Christ and his church. That's going to be the foundation for how he teaches how a husband and a wife ought to interact with each other. He's going to show how each party should act based on the marriage between the lamb and his bride, something we see throughout all the New Testament and in the Old Testament, by the way. But that's not the only thing that we see here. At the big picture level, Paul is showing us that through Christians obediently fulfilling their roles in marriage, God declares his intentions for uniting all things in Christ. Now that sounds real cosmic. It is. He's actually pointing us back to Ephesians 1.10. I know it was a long time ago, but he's actually pointing us back to here and helping us see that this is all about his cosmic plan to unite all things in Christ. More on that next week. Now remember, this is not a new section. Like I said, in verse 22, he's explaining what submission looks like within the confines of real life, within marriage. He's showing us what it looks like to submit to one another in very real ways. He talks about the parent-child relationship. 
He talks about the servant and the master relationship. This first one, though, is about the husband and the wife. Verses 22 through 24 are really more of a statement of fact than they are some sort of heavy exhortation. And what I mean by that is, you know, he doesn't use an imperative verb to say, do this, with some sort of a big exclamation point. Instead, the big exclamation point came back in verse 18, be filled by the Holy Spirit. And then what we're seeing is an outworking of what it looks like to be filled by the Holy Spirit. He addresses first the wives, explaining their role in Christian marriage. He states that they should be submitting to their husbands. Paul is really talking about ordering, the ordering of the household here. What he's saying is that he's, he's, he's talking about alignment within the household. He calls the wife to submit or to subject herself to her husband. Now here's the word we don't like to toss around very much, but this is exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about subordination. He's talking about the wife almost in a military term that is willing to put herself under the authority of the one who has been given the authority to take care of that household. It's really, again, almost a military term. One scholar said it well this way, though. He said, God has established certain leadership and authority roles within the family, and submission is a humble recognition of that divine ordering. Notice that he doesn't tell the wife to submit only. He says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, what does he mean by that? Notice that he's saying that this is a humble recognition of God's design and plan. This subordination flows out of Christian obedience and love for the Savior. This is his to do. This is his thing to call us to. It doesn't mean that the wife treats her husband as though he's the second person in the Trinity. That's not what's happening here, as to the Lord. That's not what he means at all. Rather, he's saying, as to the Lord, means that her submissiveness flows out of her commitment to Christ, not out of her commitment to him. So, wives, remember that. Your commitment to Christ is the thing that makes you willing to submit to your husbands. That's what he calls us to. As you submit to your Lord, Jesus Christ, he calls you to this very thing. This is true also, if you think about this, though, the very same thing is true of the husband. Your job, your role as a husband is not something that you choose to do. What I mean by that is you don't get to like wrestle your wife for being the husband. And if she wins, she becomes the husband. That's not what happens here. This is all about being submitted to God's design and plan for marriage. It is his will and his work. And as the man takes this seriously, he says submits himself to the Lord as well. Paul goes on, though, to explain why she should do this. Verse 23, take a look. For the husband is the head of the wife. Paul explains that a wife is to submit to her husband because the husband is the head of the wife. Now we ask, in what way, Paul, what does this mean that the husband is the head of the wife? Well, he helps us out here if we continue to read. He says, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. We're looking at a relationship of authority. This structure here, understanding that it's a position of authority over the wife. He is her head. Now, if this sounds familiar, this idea of head, it's because he's already used this term at least twice in Ephesians, and both those times are referring to Christ. In Ephesians 1.22 and Ephesians 4.15, Paul uses this term head to talk about Christ. And in both of these passages, he refers to Christ as ruler or as one with authority over his church. It's in this way that Paul uses the term to describe the role of the husband as the head of the wife in marriage. 
So the wife is supposed to submit to her husband because the husband has been placed as the authority or ruler in the household. Now, you'll see, though, that he kind of adds a few extra things here at the end of this sentence. Throughout this passage, he's going to do this a couple different times. He's going to expand his analogy when it comes to the glories of Christ and kind of explain how serious he is and how the depths of this thing work. For instance, Paul says Christ is himself its Savior. Now, when when you see that, the question should be to us, does that mean that the wife should submit to her husband as head and Savior? Like, does, does the husband save his wife? Is that what's going on here? Well, no, that's not the point that Paul is making. We'll see that he does this a couple times, especially we're going to see it in 26 through 27. Paul is drawing our attention to Christ, who is not only the head of the body, but its Savior. He uses this curious little phrase, if you see, is himself its Savior. Simply put, to kind of cut to the chase here, he is helping us understand that that's not meant to be part of the analogy that husbands are supposed to be the Savior. He is expanding on to make sure we understand the value of Jesus Christ and what he is doing, specifically as its, save, as its head, but also the one who is our Savior. Now, back to that in a moment. He gets back to his point in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He's not trying to tell the husbands, as we just said, to be the savior of their wives. He's clearly talking to the wives to make sure that they understand to look to the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. That's what they ought to have their eyes on. And they realize when they look at that, they are to play the role of the church, to submit to their husband as head. There's not a lot of new information in verse 24. It's kind of a recap of the things that he's already said, except for one little thing, in everything. This really uncomfortable little phrase, in everything. What does he mean? Unfortunately, to be honest, this little phrase has been terribly abused throughout church history to the detriment of many marriages and truthfully to the detriment of the testimony of Jesus Christ and his church. What is Paul saying here? Is this a command that gives husbands unquestioned power within marriage? Or does, does a wife have to submit to her husband in every part of life? Well, to that second question, the answer is yes. And I'll explain what I mean. Paul is saying that there's not even one part of our marriage in which we are allowed to stop playing the roles that God has given to us. Not one spot where we can say, okay, you be the husband here, I'll be the wife for the, for the husband to do that. Or the opposite way around. There's no part of our marriages where we can subvert those two. Because in all things, this shows the relationship of Christ and his church. Now, two brief comments on that, because again, a lot has been done in abusing this language. First, this doesn't mean that a wife should unquestioningly do everything her husband asks her. She should be willing, but obviously there are exceptions. For instance, sin. A wife should not sin against God because her husband told her to do so. Obviously not. This would be sin. We know that our obedience is to God rather than man. But more importantly, just to stay in the context, remember how the wife is to submit to the husband. What is it? As to the Lord. If if there was anything that would lead to sin, she should first say, my allegiance is to Christ first. We understand that that would be the truth. A wife should not sin against God if her husband asks her to. But also, a wife should wisely and submissively challenge the thinking of her husband if she understands that what he is asking of her may not be the best course of action. 
And I'd even say it's okay to do this humbly and wisely if it's something that the wife does not like to do. We have to recognize that there should be times for questioning, there should be times for heated debate even, when done humbly and lovingly within the marriage relationship. Uh, it's not necessarily sinful for a wife to question her husband. We, gotta th- we, we think about this too unilaterally. This is not what he is saying at all. A wife should exercise her gifts in asking questions and be willing to suggest opportunities and alternatives. Because ultimately, if you think about this, it is for the betterment of the household and it's actually for the betterment of her husband as well when done properly. It's for the betterment of all those in our household. So we have, we have to have a category here for us to see that disagreement and questions and even suggestions are biblical and right for a woman to do, a wife to do with her husband. However, this is the part we don't like, if the husband asks his wife to do something that she doesn't think is best and she's voiced her concern, they've had real conversation, but it isn't sinful thing and yet the husband asks her to do it, she should do it with joy and with a free conscience. This is what I mean by that. Remember who will answer for being the head. Your job as a wife is to submit to the Lord, yes, as, as, as Lord, but to your husband as well. And the husband will answer for his decision-making and his leadership to God. This is not what the world likes to hear. I know we're all a little bit uncomfortable with this whole thing. This is what he's talking about, though, here. This is what it means that the husband would take that role of leadership and that the wife would submit herself to him in this way. She can know that he will be responsible for leading the household and that she will be responsible for submitting to her husband. On a practical, way, uh, a pr- practical note, wives, I'm just going to get real practical for a moment. Be careful not to treat your husbands in a way that you are making it clear by your attitudes and your words or by their lack of words that you think his decision is dumb or stupid. Um, no one needs in marriage someone to say, I told you so. That is not love. Like We have to understand that. That's kind of really subversive and unkind. And we would actually say what Paul has said in the rest of Ephesians, that we are to build one another up in love. There is a right way for us to dress one another and to ask questions, and to disagree, and even again to have heated debate, and to have different suggestions. But in the end, there should be a joy in saying, I can do this, but because I can submit to Christ, and I can submit to you as my head. I understand this is not easy. This is exactly what he calls us to, and it shows us an understanding of biblical marriage. That's the first thing about a wife submitting to her husband in every area of life. But the second one of this idea of submitting in everything doesn't mean that a husband can't hand some of the duties and tasks within the household over to his wife. To be sure, it's probably wise for him to do so. Um, Husbands, if I can just address you for a minute, your wives are smart, talented people that you are lucky to have. You should take this seriously and with great thanksgiving to the Lord because they have been given to you for his purposes and to be a blessing to you. The scriptures are pretty clear. We know this. If God gives children, wives are to lovingly care for these children and attend to the home diligently. But this does not mean that she is limited to the nursery and the kitchen. That's not what he's saying here. And if I can just say kind of like a pastoral word, this is for me, I would say that it is wise for you, husbands and wife, to look together at your, um, 
your proclivities, your desires, your ta- the things that you are good at, the skills that God has given to you, and wisely work through the different tasks and duties that have to be done within a household. It is for the glory of God that this household is running, not for your own. It's not to say, see, I told you I would have been better at that, but rather to work together for the sake of building one another up in love. Again, that doesn't mean that the husband submits to his wife in some of these areas that decides, hey, you do this one, I'll submit to you in this area, and you submit to me in the rest of these areas. Overall, remember, the husband will answer for his leadership, his responsibility as the head with the authority in every area. So this is how Paul explains submission within the household, that the wife should submit to her husband in every area of life as the church submits to Christ. But we've only just begun conceptually. What I mean is, Paul doesn't only speak to the wives. You know this. He will now turn to the husbands. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, this is where, when I start reading this, this is where I start to sweat. Do you have any idea this call, how big and how deep and how impossible this call is for husbands to do? Do you realize that he is calling us to love like Christ did? Up to this point, if we're honest, many of us are thinking, yeah, okay, now it's time for us to be told to take authority and take charge of the household and rule well. Those seem all to be good things. To rule our spouses with strength and honor and dignity. Here's where we really get to be the glorious heads of household. But Paul's concern for leadership has nothing to do with the traditional norms of bringing glory to oneself if you're disciplined and effective as a ruler. He calls the husband to the humanly impossible task of loving our wives as Christ loved the church. This is the call for the husband to imitate Christ in his attitude and his direction and his care for his wife. Husbands are called to think of their wives before themselves. They're called to give of of themselves. That, That word specifically actually just means literally give himself or deliver oneself over for the other person. Paul calls for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved us and went to the cross for us. This is the call to willingly sacrifice and care for a man's wife. It's not under compulsion, but rather it's voluntarily loving their spouse. It's a beautiful picture of not only kind of that mushy love or some sort of erotic love, It is love that is fully orbed, understanding the covenant of marriage and faithfulness to one another that not only says, I love you, but then acts in love, gives itself for the other person. And far above the abusive, selfish rulership that a lot of us think of when we think of submission, Paul shows the husbands that we are rather to be a beacon of hope and refuge and safety for our wives there should be an easy way for her to look to Christ because she understands her wife will protect and love and give himself for her. Husbands, our standard is not a set of rules. Our standard is much higher. It is to look to Christ who gave himself for the church. He goes on to describe not just giving himself, but he he describes the extent of the care that Jesus did, the work that Jesus did to rescue his bride. Look at verse 26 and 27. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
Now that's a love that works. I mean, look at this. He is saying that what Christ does is sanctify her, cleanses her, washes her with the word, presents, to, presents the church to himself. This is a high level of care. But before we go too far, I want to make sure we understand what he's talking about here. We have to understand how Paul is using this analogy. He's not asking husbands to do these exact same things as Christ did for his church. At first, when I was studying this, I, I mean, I was trying to make sense of how a husband was supposed to do all these things, sanctify her, cleanse her, wash her with the word, present her to himself in splendor. And again, I could see how some of these things could be done, not necessarily exactly like Jesus did them, but maybe we could twist them a little bit to say this is how a husband would do this for his wife. But it, came increas- but it became increasingly difficult for me to justify how any husband was supposed to do these things for his wife. And as I looked at the context, I realized that this wasn't Paul's main point. When we consider the way that Paul writes in Ephesians and the content of this analogy, we realize that Paul is taking a moment to explain the glorious and extensive and deep nature of Christ's sacrifice and love for the church. He's not saying do exactly this thing that Christ did. We obviously couldn't. The rest of Scripture is going to bear witness that we can't save, that we can't sanctify, that we can't do these things. But what he is showing us is that this is how Christ loved us and delivered himself up for us. These depths, again, it speaks to the glorious and extensive nature of Christ's love. Of course, husbands can't do these things, but they can understand the deep sacrifice and work of Christ Jesus for his church. The bride couldn't sanctify herself. We know this to be true. We get an understanding of the amount of work that Christ has done. The bride can't cleanse herself. The bride can't wash herself with the word. The bride can't present her to him spotless and perfect without wrinkle and whole without blemish. All these things had to be done by God. Now, let me explain why this is. What we're actually seeing him referencing here is the relationship between God and his people. He is talking about, this is a strange word to use, but a bridal bath or cleansing or preparation for those to be married. What he is referring to is something we see back in Ezekiel 16. Now, if you haven't read Ezekiel 16, you need to go read Ezekiel 16 today. It will knock your socks off. It's astounding to see the steadfast love of God for his people, both in his creation, also in his rescuing, also when he is reviled and treated terribly, what he does to make things right and how he shows his steadfast love to his people. I'm not going to read the whole thing today, but there's, there's too much to cover, but I, I do think you should go back and read it. But I'll simply reference the first 14 verses of chapter 16 because it's a beautiful telling of the story of God's work to bathe this person, this bloody vagabond, and make her his own. He does this to her so that she can be prepared for marrying him. It's a story of mercy and sacrifice of love and joyful work on behalf of the unlovely one. And that's what Paul is actually describing here, yet in full. He's talking about Jesus Christ and his work to make his bride his own. He's done it. It's not just a prophecy in Ezekiel 16. It's happened in Jesus. When he died on the cross, this is exactly what he did, both in Mark 2 and John 3. You'll probably remember Jesus and the writers there talk about Jesus as the bridegroom. In other words, he's the groom, and the rest of the New Testament tells us we, his people, are the bride, the bride of Christ. 
And he's showing us that this has actually happened. So what we are seeing is a description of the work by the husband, Jesus, to the wife, his bride, the church. This then is the standard of care for us as husbands to consider how we love and work and sacrifice for our wives. He is to love her and to give himself up for her. Our example, again, of this kind of love is Jesus himself. It is Christ who is our grand example of willing, joyful, sacrificial love. And that's why he says then, once he gets to verse 28, in, that, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. This is the way that a husband is to act as the head of the household. Not, get this, not as a little king who gets whatever he wants. Not as some tyrant who gets to order everyone around doing all his bidding. You do whatever I want. That's not the picture at all here. His posture is one of love and care and is one who will answer for the administration of this household, for taking care and loving them. We're going to learn even more about this next week because this kind of care is the kind of care that naturally provides for himself, nourishing her and cherishing her. her. Uh, But we'll, we'll get that next week. One thing is clear here. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Now, if you're paying attention, you saw verse 28 when I stopped reading, I stopped short of the whole thing. That's because Paul is going to begin a shift towards a larger point here as he shows us that a man loving his wife is really a man loving himself in the right way. Next week, if... uh, Next week, we are going to dive into that side and help us understand that Christian marriage isn't just about helping a husband and wife work well together. That's not the point here. He's going to show us something even greater, but we'll cover that next week. So, for now, we need to stop and consider all that Paul has called us to in these verses. We saw that wives, as a part of their obedience to the Lord, are to submit to their husbands in every way in their marriages. They are to do this in the same way that the church submits to Christ as the head. But also the husbands. Husbands are to love their wives, to give themselves up for her, to work and sacrifice lovingly themselves for the sake of their wives. Why? Because it's the role that Christ gave you to do, husbands. And it's because of this that he ought to rule wisely, but that's not what even Paul says here. He calls us to love our wives. The husbands are to imitate Christ in his sacrificial love and care for the church. Now, these are super high callings. These things are almost impossible. And I would just go one step further and say, these things are impossible to do. I mean, especially in a world that totally devalues any sort of actual roles within marriage where the, all the lines are blurred and gendered. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. Anyone that wants to be can be the husband and anyone that wants to be can be the wife. This sh- hammers back this very clearly. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. We're understanding that this is something that we cannot do. But I'll just remind you, there is grace for us. The call today, guys, the call today isn't to be like, okay, be countercultural and do your best to submit, ladies and husbands. Just you need to love really hard. Do your best at that. I already, I already admitted we can't do it. Then how do we obey this? Again, there's grace remembering where this whole passage came from. It's flowing out of verse 18. Where do you think we're ever to get the power to do something? Else? Where can we ever get a heart change that actually allow us to do this? 
It comes from being filled by the Holy Spirit. This can only happen properly with joy and be completely effective in Christian marriage. I want to remind us that these commands are flowing out of verse 18, that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is a clear command of faith for us to obey, but also to trust Him completely. It's to rely on God, to abide in the vine, as we saw last couple times, to, pre- to, uh, to repent of our self-reliance and instead to throw ourselves on the grace and work of God. This is not, again, this is not a sermon that says, okay, go back and do your best at being your roles. This is actually saying submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. Allow Him to fill you and obey Him. And guess what? You're going to have to repent again, and you have to pray again, you have to submit yourself to Him, and then you're going to have to do your role again. And then you're probably going to have to repent again, and you're probably going to have to pray again, and you're going to probably have to work as hard as you can to obey again. And as we do so, completely relying on God, we will watch His progressive sanctification in us. Again, this is grace to us. This is a good word for us. That this can happen not by our own white-knuckling power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who controls us. So that's the first big thing I want us to notice. But there's more than that here. Um, I, I realize that not everyone in this room is married. I understand that. So does this, none of this just applies to you. This sermon, you can throw this sermon out, right? No. Two reasons why. First of all, next week is coming, and this is all tied together. You have to understand that this is the way that Paul said to do this because it's going to matter a great deal next week. So the first thing is just really practical. You need to know this because you need to know the whole counsel of God. You need to understand what God says about marriage so that we can move forward properly within his whole design for all of the cosmos. But there's a second thing, and it's for everyone. Whether you are a child in here, whether you are not married, look at this. If you are a believer, this is amazing. The picture that Paul has painted for us here is one of Christ who loved the church and gave himself for her. That's us. That's us who received the love of God, who, have, who are the unworthy wives of our God. I'm, I'm not trying to be strange here because this is a biblical concept. We are the church, the bride of Christ. And what we experience in this is the fact that God has loved us and given himself, went to the point of death for us to cleanse us and sanctify us and wash us with the word. And we know we're experiencing in part right now, but in full one day will present us perfect without blemish or wrinkle to himself as that perfect bride. That is our place. This is an occasion for humility and amazement. And we just passed this holiday, Thanksgiving. It doesn't stop around around, around Thanksgiving time. This is a great opportunity and occasion for us to be thankful for all that Jesus has done. He has shown us in this passage his great love for his church and what it means to be those who are loved by Christ. So church, this is God's word to us. Let us obey him to his glory and for our joy. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are gracious and kind to give us your word. Lord, I don't, we have nothing good to say about marriage in and of ourselves, and it will probably just end up looking like whatever we think is true or whatever the world says. But God, these things teach us something broader that they matter because you have placed 
husbands and wives in roles that teach us something about you. I pray that you give, in a sense, great success to this church because they're willing to obey and repent and be filled with the Holy Spirit, not because they're so great at following the rules. God, we need you. God, please, would you convict our hearts that we'd repent and trust you completely as the God who has rescued his people, who has given himself, who has sanctified us. Lord, we thank you for your great love, and we ask that you teach us to submit and love and grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.